0: The Interchange podcast is brought to you by Wonder Capital, the award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S. Wonder Capital says you can earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio and combating global climate change. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash gtm. That's wonder with a U, wondercapital.com slash gtm. Wonder Capital, do well and do good. This is The Interchange, weekly conversations about the global energy transformation from Greentech Media. I'm GTM Editor-in-Chief Stephen Lacey, joined by GTM's Senior Vice President Shale Khan. Hey, Shale. Hey, Stephen. We're back in familiar territory this week. Once again, we are revisiting Mark Jacobson's famous, some might say infamous, 100% renewable energy scenario. Now, I promise we're not starting an entire series devoted to this topic, rather we're rounding out our previous conversation with Jacobson by turning now to Dr. Christopher Clack, the lead author of the Critique of Jacobson's Modeling, which was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in June. If you haven't heard our earlier interview with Jacobson, you might want to go back and give it a listen. These conversations are meant to complement one another. A quick primer on Dr. Clack. He's the CEO of Vibrant Clean Energy uh, based in Colorado. It's a company that does uh, forecasting, weather forecasting uh, for wind and solar, uh, does grid modeling. He's done a lot of grid modeling over his career. Uh, he worked at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. He did work for the National Academy of Sciences. He was at the University of Colorado. And so uh, this is a guy who understands modeling and has been working in the renewable space for quite a long time. So we just wrapped up this long conversation on Jacobson's modeling, um, on Jacobson's rebuttal to Clack's rebuttal, on the meaning of the debate over 100% renewables, and what uh, Dr. Clack's intentions were in targeting Jacobson's work. So she'll flag some of the more important moments for us. What stood out to
1: you? So we spent a bunch of time with Clack going sort of point by point through a bunch of the responses that Jacobson had when we spoke to him a couple of weeks ago to Clack and his collaborators paper. And those are all important, I think, one by one, just so that you can hear both sides of the equation. But actually, the part of this conversation that I found to be the most valuable was the part that we didn't get to when we spoke to Jacobson a couple of weeks ago. And that was one of the other areas of criticism um, in Clack's paper about Jacobson's work, which was the need to integrate uh, questions about transmission infrastructure and transmission requirements and the siting of resources when you're trying to do a comprehensive, quote unquote, grid integration study, which is what um, Jacobson was setting out to do and and didn't incorporate into his modeling. And so I think Clack had a, a good explanation of why that is really important and why that can set limitations on the technologies that you're modeling if you don't account for it otherwise. What about you? Yeah. Well, it it turns
0: out when you're calling your study a grid integration scenario, there are very specific things that you need in there. And I think that's the the biggest beef that that Clack had. And he walks through why the study itself uh, wasn't a grid integration scenario. And I think that brought us to a couple of moments when we talked about semantics and the importance of language. And while Clack and his co-authors clearly had problems with the modeling itself, I think the reason why they decided to go public with this and to to kind of go after the framing of Jacobson and his co-authors was because of the way they describe the study itself and the outcome of the study. And so it really, to me, revolves around language and how um, Jacobson is selling this and how supporters of the scenario are then selling it in the policy arena.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Though, you know, this I, I, we tried to dig into that a little bit with Clack as well. And I think his response would be, you know, it's not just the framing of the issue. It's also, he believes that a bunch of the assumptions that were baked into Jacobson's model in at least that one study in PNAS a couple of years ago are just totally implausible or as he stated in error. So he thinks it's more than just framing. He thinks this is, this is, you know, sort of not, not academically rigorous. So I think that's, that's enough preamble. Let's
0: actually hear from Christopher Clack. We begin the conversation by asking him what possessed him to jump into this debate in the first place.
2: Uh, Essentially I um, was uh, trying to work as um, a lot of other people were trying to do working on this energy transitions idea of how do we actually transition the United States and other places around the world to low carbon uh, futures and how do we do it in a way that's uh, cheap or or as low cost as possible because we want to be able to continue this on uh, for as long as possible and uh, i followed uh, mark's work um just like a lot of other people did and i saw some of the work and um when this paper first came out the pnas paper that they published first came out i was surprised by the results um but i thought this is great we can actually have something here that um uh, does change the uh, the way forward uh, but then as soon as i started reading through it i found there was a bit of bit of an issue Uh, with the paper, Um, and the more I dug into it, the more issues I found, and so um, at first I contacted Mark and and pointed out the issues, and uh, sort of encouraged him to uh, make a correction or change what's in the paper, uh, to make it clearer, uh, and also to correct mistakes. Uh, He didn't do that, and uh, continued not to do it in the public and uh, elsewhere, and so it seemed like it was the only way to actually um, get a correction in the literature was to actually go ahead and write an article, a peer review article on it. Um, and we tried to do our best to do the peer review articles so that we were actually trying to talk about the broader picture, not just about the the paper, which probably didn't come across to, to a lot of people. But that's the idea was to say, you know, anyone who's doing this type of modelling has to do a bare minimum to be believable because it's such a, important topic um and so we used it we used that paper as a counterpoint to show where these things have gone wrong and and why they're important so to be clear here you're
0: not saying that it's like a bad question to ask whether we can get all our energy from wind water and solar as you said you were thrilled that someone was trying to tackle that idea you're just arguing that this 2015 grid study from jacobson and his colleagues um was provided an unreliable guide to getting there is that fair
2: yeah so um i uh, that that's a very good question to ask. Can we do one hundred percent renewables, um, not just wind water and sun but all renewables um, is a good question to ask and and the reason is a good question to ask is every study that i've seen that um, is rigorous and study i 've done myself with colleagues and co authors show that one hundred percent isn 't possible um Uh, And if you do force it on on the system within models, it becomes very, very expensive and very, very difficult to keep everything running. And so, uh, of course, people having studies to look at this is really important. And if someone comes up with a way to do it, uh, the point is that there's so much evidence saying that you can't do it um, from rigorous analysis that if you do show it, you have to show it with so much evidence uh, that people can actually read it and understand it and uh, duplicate it. Uh, and unfortunately, the PNAS paper was um, way off the mark in that respect. It, not only is it not repeatable, there was mistakes in it. It was kind of sloppy in a lot of its work. Um, and so we ended up having to get it changed because uh, the lead author wasn't going to publicly change any of the statements that they were making. And unfortunately, in science, we have to self-correct. And the only way we could do it at that point was write a peer review paper
1: so one of the things that jacobson pointed out when we spoke to him a couple of weeks ago was that he's been publishing various iterations of 100 percent wind water and solar scenarios in lots of different venues for lots of different locations um with different some different technology combinations he kept pointing out that the the version that was in that specific PNAS paper isn't the only pathway to get there. And you could have less hydro, you could have more CSP, you could, you know, do a bunch of different things. Why pick this paper to critique? And was there something distinct about it because it was published in PNAS that you thought this was what we need to go after?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, So um, if you actually go through and look at the papers uh, he has published with his co-authors, the vast majority of them aren't actually... Uh, looking at trying to supply power uh, at some high resolution so they're almost all uh, looking at can a state looking at its resources have enough power on an annual basis or something of that order to power itself from a certain set of technologies and primarily they are all wind water and sun Um, and we can talk about that a bit more later on but essentially Uh, one of the reasons we had to do this one is because they were masquerading this paper as a grid integration study, uh, which it is not. And that then garnered it with a lot of support from people that said, basically, we've looked at this rigorously or a scientist that looked at this rigorously and has shown that you can do it. And actually, you can't from that paper. And all the other papers that they've done are pretty much uh, related to showing there's enough. So 100% for Washington State or 100% for... Uh, New York State and things like that—they're not actually done from uh, a looking at can they supply the power at the time it's needed, where it's needed. Um, the few that they did do, um, Mark wasn't actually the lead author. There's some good ones uh, by Bethany Frew, one of his students, um, excellent research done by her, and that actually shows the same thing that we're we're showing, which actually shows that once you go above 80%, the costs actually go up very high, and even in those papers, it shows that actually the cost double. Um, from 80% to 100%. And so that's in actual support of what we've been um, talking about in our paper. And so if you go in and dissect the papers that they've actually published on it, you start very quickly dwindling down the number that you could actually talk about, looking at you know actually operating the grid. And this is the only one they've done where you actually operate the grid um, in in any way, um, with this high level, 100%. Uh, and it just unfortunately um, doesn't stand up to scrutiny.
1: It strikes me when you're describing. You said a minute ago that all the other studies that you've seen um, suggest that it is not possible. I think it may make sense to spend a minute parsing language here because it, it seems to me that you've got kind of three questions. If you're if you're trying to say can we do this with can we go to 100% wind, water, and sun, you've got three questions within that. One is it technically possible meaning could you with any amount of you know sort of commercially available or nearly commercially available resources power the grid nationally with just those three things and keep the lights on so could you maintain reliability so that's the po- technically possible then there's like is it plausible um from a political standpoint or an environmental standpoint or you know all the other things that'll come into play if you actually try to implement the solution and then there's the the, is this economically preferable amongst all the possibilities for how to get to 100% and I want to be I want to have you be clear on what you're saying here because when you're saying it's not possible you're talking about cost doubling that strikes me as the last question is it economically efficient to do that are you saying it's also technically impossible.
2: So if you, uh, so that's that's a good point, and um, I want to be clear. So if you, if you do the gross analysis, um, which a lot of us have done, which is look at the resource available, uh, and and I call that the unimpacted resource. So before you install any wind turbines or solar panels and things like that, is there enough energy available to power the whole United States with wind, water, and sun? And the answer is a categorical yes. There is enough energy available to power. United States. But then it gets to the second uh, question which becomes more more important which is is the energy available when you need it. And so when you look at any 100% study that's been done thus far there is a technology which essentially fills the gap of renewables either um, diurnally so in the days or seasonally and seasonally is the bigger issue than the diurnal one. I think the diurnal one can be easily solved. Um, the seasonal one is a much bigger problem. And then when you look at the uh, inter-annual, so between years, that's an even bigger and much harder problem. And the question whether that's possible uh, is open. We don't know the answer to that question if that's possible. Um, It looks like if you blend technologies together, you can get up there to a high amount, but we just don't have the data available to know whether you can do that long-term. We just don't know. We don't know what the consequences of lots of wind turbines will be on the resource we don't know uh, whether we have these big lulls and uh, peaks in wind Uh, we don't know the effect of climate change on the irradiance for solar panels so we just don't know the answer to that so very quickly the answer is we don't know Um, and then the third part when we talk about uh, cost um, you you have to think about moving the power around so whether you can move it around and it be reliable um We've shown that 80% or so it is reliable, so you can get much higher than we've got today. At 100%, again, we just don't know whether we could keep it reliable because of all these uh, interactions. And, and the reason I say that is when we're at 100%, we've got no wiggle room. If we're at 85% or 75%, you know, the inter interannual changes, we've got some buffer and to, to, um, capacity built into the grid, for example, to, to absorb that when we're relying solely on the vagaries of the weather um, for everything for hundred percent, we've got nothing else. And that's the, that's the key. And so that again is a question of, we don't know Uh, you can run simulations where you can power everything um, with batteries say, or some storage with, with wind and sun and solar, but you, you quickly run into a bigger issue in my opinion, which is okay. Let's say we have a hundred percent system um, hypothetically Now you've got to think about working out forecasting of load and of the weather, because that's your fuel source now, seasons or years ahead of time with really good accuracy so that you know how much energy to store, how much to shed, how much to transmit, how much to consume. And you need to do that all the time, predicting far enough ahead that you'll never run out of power because you've got nothing there um, as backup. And so... Even though you can do it without, say, forecasting, you can say on paper, if we knew what the weather was and we knew what the load was, we can match supply and demand. That's very different to the real-world scenario of having to plan for six months in advance what winter is going to be. Prime example is, if I could tell you today what the weather was going to be everywhere in the United States on Christmas and what exactly uh, the energy consumption was going to be over the entire country and how people were going to travel... Um, I think I'd have um you know built a very sophisticated model. And unfortunately when I worked at NOAA and looked at how weather forecasting is done, um and if you believe um Lorenz, it's almost impossible to forecast the weather that far ahead. And so
1: I'm not sure I'm there. clear on why we're incapable of doing that. Not not obviously we're not capable of knowing the exact weather on December twenty fifth as of today, but Certainly that's already true. One can, we have a general sense of what the diurnal and the seasonal fluctuations will be. We know that there's going to be a lot less solar generation in winter than in summer. And I think we can be reasonably accurate in terms of the overall differential. So we build in a bigger reserve margin of hydro, for example, in the winter. I mean, are we so incapable of figuring that out? Or are you just saying we haven't yet proven that we can? And before you answer
0: that, Chris, I I do want to just give people a little bit more detail on your background. Um, You're the CEO of Vibrant Clean Energy. You you do do wind and solar forecasting and grid modeling. You spent a large part of your career working on those issues, having done some important work at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uh, work for the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, You are at the University of Colorado. And you were also a co lead on a 2016 paper in the journal Nature climate change, looking at how the US could slash carbon emissions 80% cost effectively. So you're not just some um, armchair academic, you've, you've worked a lot on the modeling yourself and on weather forecasting. So uh, you can go on to answering Shale's question, but I just wanted to set that out for our listeners.
2: Yeah, like, like you say, I've, I've worked a lot, I've spent a lot of time working on this and and thinking about it, and uh, it's... It, the the problem is that if you look at the spread of, say, temperature on, uh, I'm picking Christmas Day because it's an easy one to do, or New Year's Day, um, there's a very large uh, variation in temperature year on year of, of the temperature, for example, um, on one specific day. And the point I'm, I was trying to illustrate is that uh, w- we don't have enough capability, and I don't think we ever will have the capability to be able to predict that far ahead with enough accuracy to be able to say we can hold this much reserve and we're going to be fine um, because of the way the weather works just isn't, isn't, it isn't possible. Um, and I'm not saying that we can't get close to that. And I'm not saying that we, you know, should use anything other than you know, zero carbon uh, generation. But what I'm trying to say is that when you run up to this hundred percent, it's a very different um, way of operating society and energy production, even to 99% or 90% because you're not, you don't have any room by definition for anything else to be able to, to help in the mix.
1: So back to this, the three parts here. So it sounds like what you're saying is um, on the question of technical feasibility, you're saying, we don't know. Um, this you're saying that this Jacobson's work does not prove that it is technically feasible, nor does any other work prove that it is technically impossible. On the question of plausibility, you're saying you are highly skeptical of plausibility that it would actually maintain reliability on the grid. Um, but sounds like you're not going so far as to say you think it's completely technically implausible. But again, Jacobson's work doesn't prove it in your mind, and then on the cost question, you're just saying it would be at least based on the research that, that you respect and have done. You think it will be prohibitively expensive. Is that all yeah, accurate?
2: Yeah. I mean, I would, I would clarify that, um, <laughs> saying something like, uh, you, you haven't proved that it's not true. Um, it's impossible to you know, not prove a negative. Um, but th- what, what I'm trying to say is that, um, Yes, I think there's enough energy out there. The the crux of the problem, and unfortunately this is with all energy work, and that's uh, why it's sometimes more difficult to communicate, um, is it gets very quickly into the details and becomes very difficult. And so I would say I'm hoping that there will be some solutions uh, that, that prove me wrong, essentially, and that show that you can do this um, long term, um, but at the moment there isn't any evidence that you can uh, do it at 100%. There's lots of evidence that you can get to 80%, uh, and the reason I bring costs into it is because um, this is not going to be a blueprint for the rest of the world to do it if you double or triple the cost of energy. It just isn't, unfortunately, going to happen, um, and unless you can somehow convince people of the externalities, which we should do. Um, but yeah, so uh, the long and the short for for me is that. Uh, when we analysed Mark's paper uh, with his colleagues, uh, we just found that it didn't didn't show any of the things that it said that it did on the title and the abstract, essentially. And it didn't show any of the things that people were using it for in support of. And that was the main crux of the whole thing, is we w- want to see papers like that, and we want people to continue to pursue it because it's important to try and get the answers either way so that we can move forward as a so- society. It's too big a problem to avoid asking the questions. But sadly, this paper that was written uh, just didn't at all do any of those things.
0: Let's take a momentary break to talk about our sponsor, Wonder Capital. Thanks so much to Wonder for supporting the show. Wonder Capital's online investment platform allows you to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S. Earn up to 8.5% annually while also diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution and combating global climate change. With Wonder's help, individual investors like you financed more than 50 large scale solar projects in 2017. Those projects will offset the CO2 emissions from 14.2 million pounds of coal burned in the first year alone. Coal is on its way out, solar is on its way in, and it's time for you to capitalize. You can begin investing with as little as $1,000. And best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't charge any investor fees. To learn more, create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash gtm. That is wonder with a u. wondercapital.com slash gtm. Wonder Capital.
1: Do well and do good. So when we spoke to Professor Jacobson, he used the term grid integration study a lot and a minute ago you just said this is not a grid integration study. What is a grid integration study and why is this not one?
2: So a grid integration study is something um, that looks at how you would incorporate renewables into the electricity grid or energy grid and how it would operate through time uh, when you've incorporated those technologies into uh, the grid. Uh, and when I say incorporate into the grid, immediately you have to be thinking about transmission, you have to be thinking about siting, you have to be thinking about how they operate um, each technology and also the the cost of integrating them and uh, the, the interplay between different generators and how that interacts with both the demand side and also the transmission uh, power flow as well. Is that
0: what you did in your 2016 study in the journal Nature Climate Change, where um, you looked at how to slash carbon emissions 80% cost effectively? Is that the kind of modeling that you were doing?
2: So, yeah, in that paper, in fact, we were very clear to state that this is not a full grid integration study. So we Mm -hmm. uh, were very clear and stated we didn't do a grid integration study, a full one. What we did was what we call a reduced form grid integration study. And so what that meant was we didn't explicitly look at every single transmission line in the US. We looked at a reduced form uh, subset of that and modeled the power flow and said that with those assumptions, we can get to 80% reduction Uh, by 2030 in the electric sector, um, with quite strong growth um, in the electric sector. But we were very clear in that study that it wasn't a full grid integration study, because we didn't take into account forecasting the load ahead of time, uh, forecasting the um, weather ahead of time. And we didn't model every single um, transmission line in the US either.
1: So then why is that a knock on uh, Jacobson's work? I, I, I think it's I don't know that I've seen many full grid integration studies of the sort that you're discussing because it's incredibly difficult to do. Um, why should that be a knock on his work when a bunch of the other studies also have not been full grid integration studies? Is it how he's referring, how what he believes the conclusions show?
2: Uh, well, it's firstly that they say it is a grid integration study. Um, uh, secondly, it's because they do mo- model none of the transmission at all. Um, and they cite none of the generation assets. And uh, so they don't do anything of a grid integration study. All they do is balance supply and demand in a zero-dimensional model. So that's why. So uh, most of the other studies that I've seen, and maybe I'm incorrect here, but most of the studies I've seen, when they're not a grid integration study, don't say they are a grid integration study. Um, And what that does by saying that is it tries to buy credibility for the study more than it deserves. And you can say we did something close to a grid integration study or things like that if you did like uh, we believe we did and NREL does very good grid integration studies. But this paper didn't do anything uh, close to anything relating to a grid integration study. It's a simplistic supply and demand uh, summation model rather than anything to do with the, the realities of actually integrating anything into a grid.
0: And And this is one of the... Critiques that we actually didn't get to in our long conversation with Professor Jacobson, um, we 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 kind of veered off in a bunch of different directions. We we didn't get to address this one, which I regret. But you do write in your critique that the analysis ignores transmission capacity expansion, power flow, and the logistics of transmission constraints. Similarly, those authors do not account for operating reserves, a fundamental constraint necessary for the electric grid. So again, they're really not moder- modeling any real-world conditions on the grid that it would that would be necessary to to integrate these resources.
2: Yeah, and um, I, I believe we also showed that they don't actually cite any of their new generators. So if you read their paper, they just assume that they put all the new wind and solar uh, where it already exists today or uh, whenever the model was initialized. Um, and so they don't actually look at you know where we would place new wind and solar, for example, which is something. Uh, we spent a lot of time having to work on for our Nature Climate Change paper because it really matters to know whether you can place generators where you want them. Um, And that makes a big difference on how much power you produce, when you produce it, and how you build transmission to that area and get it to where it's needed. So, so, of course,
0: language matters greatly, but is this an issue of semantics? I mean, if, if, uh, if, if Jacobson had talked about his work differently or labeled this slightly differently, would we not be having this conversation about you know, the, the real-world grid modeling itself? I mean, is this about a fundamental flaw or is it just about how it's characterized?
2: Well, it's a fundamental flaw because it's, uh, it, it appears as a lack of understanding of what a grid integration study takes to do. Um, uh, on their part in terms of what a grid integration study is and what you need to do to show it Um, and that um, is is one of the worrying parts but also it then misguides the public perception because they can then uh, look at the PNAS paper and say look someone showed that 100% wind water and sun is perfectly feasible and technical because they've done a grid integration study on it and shown that it is Uh, and to to that point that that's one of the main issues with the paper is people are saying that it's done something that it hasn't. And that's partly because of the way it was presented in the paper and also the way it was publicized afterwards. And so to me, it's if it would have been caveated with this is a hypothetical um and you know, it, it isn't for policy. It's just looking at a simple supply and demand, then that would have been fine. But in my opinion, that wouldn't have been published because we've had a lot of those uh, in the past. And also, um, it doesn't show anything that we don't already know in the collective uh, academic community. Um, and so, yes, language matters, but that's w- what all papers are about. The language in the papers is how it's uh, taken. And then the publicity side is taken, uh, and then it ends up with a lot of people don't actually read the paper itself because they can't or don't have the time to. Um, and so then you go off what the the academics are saying, and that makes it even harder Uh, for people to discern what the truth of the situation is.
1: So let's get into just a couple of the specific critiques beyond the transmission question and whether this is a grid integration study. The one that we spent probably the most time with uh, Professor Jacobson talking about, and the one that I think has gotten maybe the most attention in the press coverage of this back and forth has been around the use of hydro, where in his study, in the PNAS study, um, Jacobson and his colleagues basically assume that we add a huge amount of additional turbines to existing hydro generators so that we have maximum instantaneous output of 1300 gigawatts from hydro, which is, as you point out in in your rebuttal, more than the entire capacity of the electricity system today. Um, And you call that a modeling error in your response and then he responds to that saying no this is not a modeling error this is a deliberate assumption that we are making we think that it is possible to add additional turbines to existing generators that such that they could provide this much instantaneous output so can you help us parse this cuz i know i've gotten a bunch of responses from people where they're just confused as hell about what's going on with this hydro assumption because it seems to be really central to this question of whether the study is feasible or not.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, this one is the one that got latched on the most because I think it's the easiest, uh, to conceptualize and to understand. Um, and there's, there's, there's plenty more, but this one to me was one of the bigger ones, uh, partly because, uh, it's such a large, um, error. And so, uh, first of all, if if you make an assumption that's impossible, that's still an error in, in our opinion. Um, but the main point is that if you read through the paper and look at the capacities installed uh, for all the different generation types, uh, it says the capacity quite clearly in their tables. And the capacity for hydro was 87 gigawatts or so, which is roughly what there is today in the US. And then when you look at their plots in the paper, you see that the hydroelectric power is dispatched or sent to the grid uh, for multiple hours, 12 hours at a time at 1,300 gigawatts. So that's 1,300 uh, gigawatts. And so uh, that backs up the renewables and that actually makes a big difference to the cost because there's no cost involved to that, one. And two, you're getting essentially free energy when you need it with this huge capacity uh, of hydroelectric power. And it's one of the reasons why we felt we had to publish the paper because there was never a correction coming out from the team to correct and point out that there was this deliberate assumption uh, that they claimed they made, yet they didn't state it anywhere in the paper uh, and never publicly stated it anywhere either. And so if it was an assumption that they deliberately made but withheld that from the, the public, then that could be something else. But we called it a mistake because we believe they were honestly just trying to do Good work and trying to do good. And we thought it was just a mistake. And we, when we looked through the paper, there was no clear indication that it was not a mistake.
1: So representing Jacobson here, so his response to that, I think would be, um, or regardless of his response, this is a bit of a semantic debate at this point, whether or not it was in the original paper. We now know, or at least based on what he said, we know what he meant, which is 87 gigawatts represented average annual output, not peak capacity for that hydro and 1300 gigawatts is peak capacity and the way that you get to 87 gigawatts some ridiculously low capacity factor as a result the way you get to 87 gigawatts of average annual output and uh 1300 gigawatts of peak capacity is just by adding all these additional turbines Um, and then very very rarely using them except for in the times when they are needed for those multi-hour periods like you mentioned so do you have a critique with that idea too you consider that to be implausible or was it mostly just around the language they used where they said capacity and di- and honestly didn't define that as peak instantaneous capacity and being distinct from you know average annual capacity
2: yeah i i i do have a couple of uh, issues with it. it it sounds a lot like backtracking because if you look at the tables um All the other capacities they agree are installed capacities but they've decided now that they've changed the definition for particularly hydro. All the others they still claim are capacities. Are we to assume now that instead of them being capacities, there's some sort of bizarre average? Um, So I'm kind of confused as to why uh, we haven't seen this. But it's good that now we're able to talk about it because if if we hadn't have published our paper, no one would have known about this uh, in the public and we wouldn't be able to have a discourse about it. But then moving on to saying, can you install these turbines? Um, The answer is clearly not. Um, If you go to NREL uh, and look at their reports, which are cited by uh, Mark's papers, um, they show there's around 12 gigawatts of easily installable additional capacity at hydropower plants today. Um, If you were to dam up every river that's actually technically possible, uh, you would get 370 gigawatts. and there's no room uh, to fit loads of new turbines for these power plants. And I and I, I, wanted to state that you know, these things aren't zero space entities. They take up large amounts of room. For example, the Hoover Dam power plant stations take up roughly 10 acres of space. So they do take up space. And to get the water to flow through them, you have to build penstocks, which can be up to 10 meters in diameter, where you have to drill through the dam themselves. And then... You layer on top of that, unfortunately, things like some of these are run-of-river dams, uh, not dams, sorry, run-of-river hydro, which means that you can't actually store the power, store the water up like they're suggesting. Um, And to give some scale of why we think it is an important one is that they produce in one 12-hour period enough water to cover the whole continental US with roughly 2.8 inches of water. And that's a lot of water going down a very small space. And so whether or not it's technically feasible to fit the turbines in, which we believe isn't, uh, from all the evidence that we've seen and from all the studies that we've done, it, it just isn't even technical, technically possible. Even if you imagine that and you suspend your disbelief for a minute, the amount of water that you're throwing downstream uh, at those time periods is going to cause immense flooding issues. Um, and then for the rest of the year, immense drought issues. So uh, we keep talking about the Hoover Dam because it's a, an iconic one, but if you can imagine releasing uh, the entire capacity of Lake Mead uh, or close to it, let's say half the capacity of Lake Mead in the 12-hour period, I think downstream there would be some issues uh, with that. And then for the rest of the you know, six-month period, you don't release anything. You're going to cause droughts and flooding simultaneously. So
0: you point out that there's this supply... Problem, um, particularly related to hydro. There's also a demand problem, um, according to your critique, and and that is that the 2015 Jacobson study assumes that industrial loads are extremely flexible. Uh, over 60 percent of energy-intensive industrial demand is flexible, and that flexibility. Um, that demand response can be offered in eight-hour blocks and for you know massive aluminum smelters for example that would be nearly impossible Um, or a bunch of other industrial sites To, to, to force them to shift their demand or to shut off their machinery for eight hours at a time would be nearly impossible walk me through that assumption and why you think it would be so difficult in the real world
2: Yeah, so this is uh, one that gets very um, complicated very quickly and you can do a lot of hand-waving, but essentially what the the paper that states is a very large proportion over half of all uh, demand is essentially flexible. In fact, it's a a much larger proportion than that, but let's just say it's half. And so what that means is that uh, in eight-hour blocks with no warning, um, you may not be able to use energy, essentially. So if you're an aluminium smelter or you're a car manufacturing plant, or you're a cement uh, manufacturing plant, or you're a a server farm that needs to be uh, running Google or, you know, uh, Green Tech Media's website, uh, any of these things um, has, according to the, their paper, a huge uh, possibility to be essentially told you can't run now, you need to run later. And to me, there's two big issues with that. One is... Um, some industries can 't do it like you pointed out, so they can 't ramp down and um, and if they could, that will start costing money uh, okay that there's going to be some economic cost and or they will want to be paid to do that uh, that's not modeled in their paper at all, and so the costs associated with ramping down these industries, even if they wanted to and could do is not in there, so we don 't know how much additional cost that would uh, cause. The second uh, problem, which is less talked about but e- equally important in my opinion, is at some other time, they then have to use that power that they've accumulated up, um, that, that eight-hour period, if you, if you like. Um, and what that means is that on the demand side, you suddenly now have to think about having all this extra capacity uh, just like you do on the supply side to basically be able to ramp up your production or your use of electricity um, to maybe one, two, uh, you know, one and a half to three times what you were using before uh, the the demand time use to actually use that energy up when it's provided. And so if you can imagine a, a car factory, for example, uh, has to shut down for eight hours and then when it comes back online, it has to be at two and a half times the production that it was previously, and then in six more hours, it has to then go back down to 40%. You suddenly start seeing that you have these all these big extra costs on the consumer side to be able to match these big fluctuations in what the uh, model is trying to say it should do in terms of supply and demand. And there is no cost associated associated with that and or feasibility of looking at what that would actually do to industry and whether they could actually build that capacity to actually take care of that um, energy supply.
1: It's always, I feel like, Look, if you're going to try to draw out a 100% renewables or 100% clean energy scenario, there's like no way to do it that doesn't involve assuming some things that right now seem sort of crazy. Like Even if you're going to do it with nuclear and CCS, right? This is, There are an abundance of questions about both of those technologies, both their cost profile, their p- political plausibility, and so on. And so sometimes I have this hard time trying to figure out which things I'm supposed to say, uh, well... Certainly that's difficult today, but we're talking about the a, a 2050 scenario and we're trying to model out something very aggressive. So I'll give this one a pass versus when I'm supposed to say, no, I draw the line here. Industrial loads are not that flexible. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sometimes, and this is a case for me where the potential for demand flexibility seems hard to me to put a, a number on
2: yeah and I I think, I think that's fair, but I think there are some things that um, I believe are almost uh, impossible to change. Um, physics is one of them um, and so the aluminium smelter the one you know, that you mentioned is they will solidify if you let them cool for long enough um, and so there is a hard limit on that. there is going to be some areas where there's obviously low hanging fruit in terms of um demand management the the problem is that what we end up happening uh with a system if you start modeling it is that uh you get this constantly dynamic system where you end up finding or we found anyway that above 10 to 20 percent uh levels uh becomes really hard to start seeing any any economic benefit or benefit to the grid um and so what we see with that is that you know the We tried to be clear in our paper that more technologies help. So we're not ruling out these new technologies. We're just saying that taking them to the nth degree to try and force a 100% scenario when maybe a 95% or a 90% um, is much more feasible and faster to be able to get to and get more people behind it seems uh, like a better goal because the planning for that is so very different in all sectors of the economy than the 100% scenario, which like you say, there's always these things that we have to do. And, and uh, I, I get a little bit um, concerned that you know 2050 is only 33 years um, away. Um, that's not very long in terms of energy. But, but the problem is we're going to have to reinvent with the 100% scenario, every single fibre of our economy, not just the energy side, but the demand side, if we follow that sort of uh, direction. And that to me seems like we're basically making it harder for ourselves almost shooting ourselves in the foot um, rather than trying to do something that's got more technologies involved in it that all can help and all do their wedge uh part uh, and actually help us drive down emissions faster because we can get more people behind it um in terms of showing that you know this this way and then you can change you can bend that trajectory as tech as, as technologies improve or or get better but if, if you're aiming for something that's so hard right from the get-go that's Uh, somewhat impossible. Um, And you have to hope that one or two technologies that are either not commercial or not even proven yet, um, do all the work by 2050, then that's much harder to start building towards, in my opinion. In
0: talking to Mark, one of the things I came away from that conversation more sympathetic about was that this Critique did seem to be outside the bounds of normal academic uh, peer review or academic discussion, that um, by publishing this paper, rather than maybe a more detailed analysis of your own, it seemed to be hitting straight at Mark and his co-authors themselves. And so that's why he felt under attack. Do you see your paper, your response, as outside the bounds of normal academic protocol or a breach of protocol, um, if not why? Um, And if you do see it as something unique, why did you do it the way you did?
2: So um, I don't think it's unique. Uh, I think there's other examples in history where uh, this has happened. Um, You can think of uh, the vaccine um, papers. Uh, You can think of um, other papers that, that have also Uh, had similar um, impacts. Um, I believe there was uh, a massive debate in health uh, between fats and sugars where a similar uh, situation played out. But um, what I will say is that um, we wrote a peer review paper because there is new science in it. There is new uh, analysis in terms of uh, scalability rates, in terms of analyzing uh, the results. I think that one of the tenets of science is reproducibility uh, and critiquing other work. I don't believe that's any different. I think it's unusual uh, in the sense of that we had to publish something for the authors to take notice of the criticism they were receiving uh, in terms of uh, the, the mistakes that have been notified to them. Uh, but I'd, I'd say that we um, were doing it in, in the way that we did was that we needed a peer review paper uh, to self-correct the literature because the literature um, was showing something that was categorically uh, mistaken and uh, inappropriate for what it was saying it was doing um, and we didn't want to be the type of people that just went behind people's back and tried to get a paper retracted because of its mistakes we wanted to have a discourse and a talk larger about the, the issue in terms of how do we solve this problem, this problem is too big to worry about people's egos and to worry about whether people feel attacked or not—it's—it's it's a big issue that we're all going to be impacted by in the future. And so, uh, we needed to have the scientific literature corrected, and we did peer review, uh, and the peer reviewers agreed with us, and the editorial board of PNAS agreed with us, uh, and so it eventually got published. Even though, um, you know, it—it's a paper that you know most of us didn't want to have to do. Uh, in terms of having to write a peer review paper uh, of this nature. But we wanted to add to the literature and we wanted to add to the scientific discourse um, about it. So there's some self-correction within our field.
0: You know, I'm keen on on hearing a little bit more about that because some say, um, you know, the Jacobson paper is aspirational, right? It's just one pathway and policymakers will figure it out and they'll take that among many other pieces of analysis and and figure out the best way for their locality their state or the country and and what you're saying is that no this is extremely important this potentially puts us on a pathway that you know is not realistic and I'm wondering why you see it as so important I mean what role does Marx paper have in the discourse, and why do you think it's a pathway that we want to avoid that would make you publish in the way that you did? Because you mentioned the occasional times that people might publish a peer-reviewed critique like this. Uh, You mentioned vaccines, right? And when it comes to vaccines, there's a very clear Uh, health consequence to uh, people not giving vaccines to children and so what you're saying is that there's something much bigger here that we should be paying attention to which warranted your unique type of critique explain
2: yeah so essentially um climate change is going to have uh, massive health uh, implications for a lot of us um and uh, the poorest are going to be hit the hardest, as is always the case in these sort of things. Um, And so when you look at the 100% scenarios, and this comes back to partly cost but also other things, is when you model that, so you start with the answer, I want 100% of this, um, you end up with a scenario where you're missing out on other pathways. And so, um, for example, to get to 100%, you have to, by definition, pass through 80%, for example. But the way you pass through 80% is very different to when you plan for, say, 80%. And I'm not using 80% as being the answer. I'm just saying that when you plan for a specific scenario that has an endpoint in terms of absolutely everything has to be this type of generation, you essentially are doing um, what the, the equivalent of evolutionary dead end. You're saying this is the end point and I'm going to evolve to that point. Uh, regardless of what's around me. And, and part of the issue with that is when you do that, you find the costs and difficulties in terms of integration and difficulties in terms of supply and demand get higher and higher as you try and push down that direction. As opposed to planning for a different set of scenarios with more technologies, for example, but also planning the grid in terms of planning out where to site and things like that. Say for an 80% scenario, um, looks very different how you get there, and there's more options or spur-offs from that position than there is from aiming at the 100% scenario. And so why it's important to me and why I've spent my life uh, career um, or a lot of my career trying to work on this problem is because the more options we have, uh, the more chances we have of succeeding. And the issue is so big that I don't think failure can be an option uh, in this case. Uh, and I see failure as an option as is, is not reducing, not reducing emissions, not reducing local pollution, not reducing poverty or energy poverty in particular, and those all those things have to be thought of together. And if you're aiming for 100%, you shut off large volumes of options right from the beginning, and that becomes very difficult to uh, reverse later on.
0: But Jacobson would counter by saying we are factoring in a lot of other outcomes, health outcomes, security outcomes, that we're not just thinking about a renewable grid, we're thinking about local air pollution, we're thinking about the environmental consequences associated with uranium extraction and processing and nuclear waste disposal, we're trying to decentralize the grid with renewables to make it more secure. And so that's what he's trying to do here with this, re- these range of studies on a hundred percent renewables.
2: Right. That's, that's what he's claiming, but that's not what he's doing. He's starting with, I want to find a hundred percent renewable uh, or wind, water and sun solution, and then working back and calculating what jobs they create, what the pollution effects are and, you know, other, other, other parts, but he's already pulled out lots of other technologies that could help. Um, and yes, they've done um, some uh, less, agreeable uh, analysis on that um in previous studies uh, as to why they disclude certain things but the the point is that the the modeling i've done for example shows that some nuclear is helpful not huge amounts but not zero either um and some natural gas with ccs does help doesn't exist yet but does help but when we take it out it does increase emissions when you don't have it and things like that and so my point is that they they're automatically um coming up with an answer and then thinking of the uh, sorry yeah, they come up with the answer and then thinking of what the question should be to match it um and that supports you know his uh, advocacy roles that he he has and that's fine i'm not uh, against uh, people doing advocacy but my my main discourse with this issue is that um they think that they've solved the 100% renewable energy problem and they haven't done that with this paper and when they're saying things like oh we think of all these other things Uh, local pollution it's go and go and read any NREL study or our study or others and we all are considering those extra extra things those externalities Um, but solving the climate issue solves all those issues pretty much as well so for example in our nature climate change paper we showed that you could almost entirely eliminate uh, sulfur dioxide emissions Um, we weren't doing that as a constraint but that happens to be what happens when you remove all the coal from the fleet Um, we also showed jobs that were produced. And so these extra things do come with the transition, but it doesn't, it's not like it's unique to the 100% wind, water, and sun scenario is my point. And, and to claim that it is is somewhat disingen- disingenuous. And I'm not saying he is saying that it is, but uh, I'm saying that we need to be thinking about these things, but we have to have the end goal in sight of we need to stop climate change. And making it harder for ourselves just seems counterproductive.
1: I'm curious what you think sort of the next steps for the academic literature on this topic should be. Am I right to assume that in your view at this point, nobody has done a comprehensive 100% clean energy, even including the technologies that Jacobson doesn't, so including nuclear and CCS, full grid integration, uh, sort of taking into account all of the questions of all the big questions of plausibility Study is, and if not, is that what needs to get done next? I mean, what do we need in order to figure out what a what you think a realistic pathway is to get to one hundred percent? Yeah, so
2: I mean, I think um, there needs to be a a change in the discourse, in my opinion, to zero emissions um, rather than one hundred percent whatever. But I mean, that again is is a language thing, Uh, but I think is an important one. Is that one hundred percent anything tends to be a bad idea? Just ask farmers whether they want every crop in the world to be grown uh, as one type Um, so homogeneity is not um, what we're after Uh, we want to zero out emissions um, and I include other emissions than just greenhouse gases Um, but there are studies out there that have done um, low emissions or zero emissions uh, for different areas and all of them unfortunately come up with uh, some quote-unquote miracle or technology that uh, has to take over to do it. So, for example, there's this one uh, from, uh, I think it's a Swedish, uh, oh, no, Finland uh, university um, that does grid modeling. It does a very, very reduced form of grid modeling. Um, does actually do some transmission lines, which is uh, good. Uh, they do do hourly data as well. Uh, but they assume that you have the power to gas conversion Um, solved and fixed and and do that at huge amounts to balance the supply and demand Um, but every region is different and so there needs to be more studies done on it and we still need to be deploying lots of renewables um, but we need to have more analysis done at the zero emission what is the best way to get to zero emissions Uh, looking at all sectors and so we've done electricity quite a lot, we've done uh, in the company I I run uh, some uh, all economy look at it. When I was at NOAA, I did also do some uh, fraction of the rest of the economy as well to look at what happens when you bring these things together. And some of it is beneficial, so extra loads help and some of them actually make it harder. Um, And we have to also keep in mind that there isn't a single final answer. The energy system and human populations are constantly changing. And so we need to have a system that's nimble Um, And this is why I say more technologies is better, because when we get to 2050, the job isn't done. We have to continually update and improve the system as technologies get um, old and need to retire and new ones come along. Uh, It's a constantly evolving system um, that is going to require nurturing forever.
0: So, Dr. Clack, let me kind of channel... The sentiment from uh, supporters of Jacobson's 100% renewable energy scenario, and I think what Jacobson himself has implied, that you and your colleagues are supporters of nuclear and CCS, that you you want political preference for those technologies, and you're upset that this scenario doesn't factor them in uh and that you're not necessarily sort of paid by the nuclear industry but you have you and your colleagues have spent your careers with a political preference for those technologies and that somehow he's getting attacked because they're not factored into his analysis respond to that
2: well i mean uh sometimes i feel like uh when people uh respond like that it, it sort of shows their allegiances more than than other people's i mean I, I, I am a bit uh, disappointed in uh, that being uh, thrown at us, and uh, rather than talking about substance, um, they decide to divert attention by saying that, "Oh you're uh, you know, advocates for renewable, uh, for fossil fuels or, or anything like that." I mean, uh, I think our record speaks for itself. If you go and look at the work I've done, I um, have worked at NOAA, uh, worked at the University of Colorado. Uh, worked for the National Academies of Sciences, uh, and now set up a company to try and uh, incorporate low-cost, low-carbon emission uh, generation assets into the grid to try and put uh, more uh, help in that modelling arena for that. Um, I've never taken any money from uh, fossil fuels or um, nuclear. Uh, Nobody on the paper, apart from one person, uh, received any funding to do the paper whatsoever. We all did it... um, as part of our scientific duties we felt um the one person that did receive funding got it from the rodel foundation uh, an educational foundation uh, because uh they needed to spend time on it um and they were in between they were doing consulting in between jobs uh, and so i can't speak for all my co-authors I, I don't know exactly what all their intentions are i i think it's strange that someone would claim to know what our intentions are um without actually speaking to us about it. But my intentions were very clear from the beginning, was to correct the scientific literature. I have no uh, support or emptiness to any technologies other than what they benefits and disadvantages they have to the grid. I try to be agnostic in terms of technology, uh, apart from when they do harm. And so when they're in the model, if we are constraining something, for example, greenhouse gas emissions, some will be favored by the model than others but if we do a least cost scenario we just look at what the cheapest options are regardless of uh, my preference I don't have a preference I'm not a supporter of uh, nuclear in any way I don't support CCS I don't do anything of the sort I try to do good modeling and good science and try to educate the public and the, the broader community on that and I believe for my colleagues it's the same, but I can't categorically answer for every single one what their 100% intentions were. But what I can say is that they all came onto the paper to want to correct the science. Um, and if you look through the authors list, you will see uh, that they all work heavily uh, and supported renewables for a long time. And I want to clear up that we declared no conflict of interest at all in our uh, paper. Um, somewhat bizarrely, we had to fill out a funding uh, Uh, analysis of what we had ever been funded on uh, by uh, for PNAS uh, which is unusual for PNAS uh, or any paper to be specific but we did that out of uh, transparency Um, but we had no conflict of interest we weren't supporting any technology and we were clear in it that we don't support technologies we're saying that more technologies help not less
0: so where do you think we go from here? You identified what may need to happen from a modeling perspective, but what about in the public discourse? Um, wh- you know, how do we have a sane conversation about this?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, we've, as co-authors on, on our paper, have, have very uh, specifically not attacked Mark, uh, or as co-authors anyway, and on a personal level. We just want to talk about substance. Um, I think it's very telling that they constantly were attacking us personally, of our motives, or you know whether whether we're supporting this, that, or the other, or, or you know wanting fame and things like that, um, rather than talking about substance. Uh, they did a little bit, which is good, um, but essentially talking more about the substance. People need to listen to all sides of an argument uh, when people actually are working in this field for a long time. Uh, I know everyone's entitled to opinion, and you wouldn't get anywhere, but. Uh, we have all been working on this a long time and been thinking about it a long time, and we want to get to zero emissions, just like Mark. Um, We want the public to be educated in it. Um, With terms of the public discourse, I think that people need to just cool down a little bit, have a read of the paper again, and see that what we're trying to do uh, may come across at first if you support Mark, for example, as attacking Mark. But actually, if you look at it, you go, actually, you know, there was a mistake with the modelling, um, and they've admitted that as such. Um, they may have called it an assumption, but it was a mistake because it wasn't uh, put in the paper. And so, you know, that's now in the public discourse and they can talk about it and we can now move forward and do more work on it. What we're trying to do here is to say that we could be putting lots more renewables on the grid, and we should be, uh, but we should be supporting a goal that does what we want it to. The 100% renewables has got sort of semantically tied to zero emissions. But really what we care about is zero emissions that low cost and quickly which is the third constraint unfortunately that we can't get around anymore um, and so if we focus on that we can get more people behind it and we can drive not just innovation but deployment we can think about smarter planning we can work with utilities and the public to do this because one of the things i notice w- with working with industry is there's a big disconnect between the public perception and the industry's understanding of how the grid works and how difficult it is to Uh, integrate very large percentages of renewables. Uh, And so they feel sometimes like they're the bad guy because they're saying actually this is harder to do than people are saying. And we want to support them and help them change their business models and help them adapt and help them provide low-cost energy that's not polluting because we want to have a clean environment. And we have to do this all in 32 and a half years, um, give or take. And the faster we do it, the more time we give ourselves to get rid of the last remaining Uh, parts of emissions that are very, very hard, like land use change and things like that. And that's where I want it to drive towards. I want us to be thinking about the future of how to reduce emissions, save lives, and make the economy strong.
0: So let me distill that down. Um, Get the hell off of Twitter and and actually read and listen to what people are saying, because there's a lot of nuance to this. And uh, the discussion is is quite interesting and and robust and i think it's pretty clear that this is not an attack job uh that we are working through some pretty complex problems here so dr christopher clack thank you so much we really appreciate your time for adding some more context to your critique here and and for helping us think about what comes next
2: yeah thank you very much i appreciate being on
0: dr christopher clack is ceo of vibrant clean energy a grid modeling firm He has uh, done a lot of important work on uh, weather forecasting and grid modeling at NOAA with the National Academy of Sciences at the University of Colorado, and he joined us from Colorado. All right. Well, that's going to do it, folks. I hope you enjoyed our conversations with Professor Jacobson and Dr. Clack. There's no clear resolution here, but we're going to continue chewing on this and trying to figure out all the steps within this messy global energy transformation. That is what we're attempting to do on this podcast. Shale, uh, a
1: fun one. Thanks for another good conversation and trying to figure this out with me. Yeah. Same to you. And, you know, to all of you listening, thank you for listening. We, we got a ton of feedback on the original interview with uh, Mark Jacobson. We got like 455 comments online on the article, and then everybody's been emailing and tweeting at both Stephen and I. We appreciate all of that. It's been interesting to see the reaction. There are, you know, there are strong opinions on both sides, and we've seen both sides expressed, but also a lot of really thoughtful commentary. So please do the same on this side as well. We welcome your feedback and your criticism.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, tell us what you think we got wrong. Tell us how you think the interview went, what else we should cover, because this is just one iteration of this broader conversation we're trying to have. So this will inform the way we talk about these issues going forward, because we're all trying to figure it out.
1: Yeah. And in the meantime, we're going to get back to, to covering and thinking about and talking about trends and transitions within energy that are more immediate, uh, and that will affect businesses and climate change over a shorter period of time. We'll get back probably to these long-term academic questions at some point as well, but let's, uh, let's talk about what's happening today.
0: Indeed. Well, thanks to wonder capital for sponsoring this podcast. You can get all our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher radio, wherever you get your podcasts, make sure to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. This is a newer podcast, so it helps us gather more listeners. Make sure to listen to The Energy Gang, our sister podcast where we break down the week's news. And uh, we will catch you next week. With Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Interchange, weekly conversations on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media.